This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Father, we are once again witnessing in our own backyard uh, sins corrupting, decaying, decreational effects. And uh, Lord, we need to remember that what we've seen take place has not been committed by people who are a whole lot different than we are. Your word lumps all humanity together when it says no one is righteous, no one does good. And so we need to acknowledge that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. We grieve with those who grieve over what our collective sickness has done. But your word also shows us the path to restoration, to unity, to relational beauty, to transformation, and that is Jesus Christ. There is no redemption apart from him. There's so many alluring substitutes that promise the good life, money, power, achievement. I pray specifically for those investing in one of these many counterfeits that you would expose its insufficiency and by your spirit, your word, and your church, that you would draw lost people to your son in whom there is abundant life, the true good life. And I pray, Father, that uh, the church, the global church, would be a beacon of light. I pray the global church would serve the purpose you gave it by being a foretaste of heaven, I pray we, the church, would unashamedly hold up the gospel to the hopeless and plead with them to run to Christ for forgiveness, salvation, healing, and transformation. And Lord, we ask for those things even in the moments that we have here Today, we ask that you would illumine our hearts, our minds, to the wonderful things you have for us. And it's through Christ we pray these things. Amen. Confusion abounds in our understanding of what is meant by the church. When some people hear that word, they think of a church building. That's the church. Or they think of some particular church, Alliance Bible Church. Still others, when you mention the term church, might think of an entire denomination, the Lutheran Church, the Catholic Church. What do we mean by the church? What do we mean by that? Today and next week, we're diving into this as we conclude this series, Theological Boot Camp. My overarching concern for us as we've done this series, is to make sure we know what we believe. 
because what you believe matters to God. It's not just how you conduct yourself that matters to God. What you believe matters to God because your mind was made by God and for God. So we're diving into the church. Let me give you a definition of the church. The church is the global people of God in every age who've been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There's the definition. The church is made of people, specifically true believers for whom Jesus died and have responded in repentance and faith. That's the church. That's the church. Now, we're going to dive into three um, dimensions to the church today. We're going to look at aspects to the church, images of the church, and mission of the church. Aspects to it, images of it, and the mission of it. Okay? First, aspects to the church. There are three pairs of words that if you can bring these to mind, you'll have a much better understanding what we're talking about when we talk about the church or what questions, what clarifying questions you can ask in conversation when we're discussing this topic. Three pairs of words. The first is visible and invisible. The church is both visible and invisible. I've got a diagram for you here that will help uh, flesh this out. So we've got the visible church. This is the church as we see it. Then there's the invisible church. The church as God sees it. Only one of us is right. (laughs) It's the only hint I'm going to give you. We've got the visible church, the invisible church. We've got the church as we see it, the church as God sees it. Okay? Notice the middle, overlap. There are those that we believe to be genuine disciples of Christ who are indeed true disciples of Christ. But notice the places where there is no overlap. Where there is no overlap. Notice on the left. All those professing Christians whom we believe to be Christians to whom the Lord will say on the last day, away from me, I never knew you. Notice they're part of the visible church, so they walk among us. And on the other side, there are all those whom we don't know. There's many, many, many there. We don't know them at all. We don't know their names. We don't know their faces. Or those we don't believe to be disciples of Christ to whom the Lord will say on the last day, enter my paradise. The church is both visible And it's invisible. That's the first pair. Second pair of words, local and universal. Paul makes mention of local churches that met in homes like that of Priscilla and Aquila, Nympha, Philemon. There are local churches that met throughout the region of Galatia and in the cities of Rome and Laodicea and Colossae. It's local. Alliance Bible Church is a local church. 
But there are also more than a dozen places in the New Testament where the term church is not used in reference to some particular church in a specific geographic region, but to the universal church. For example, Galatians 1, Paul speaking, for you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This is not making mention of some particular local church in some particular geographic region. The Apostle Paul looked at his treatment of the church and Christians and said this was committed against the church at large, the universal church. Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So neither of these passages are talking about some particular local church restricted to some geographic region, but it's talking about the universal Church. So when talking about the church, you see, it's important. Define what you mean. Are you talking about the visible church or the invisible church? Are you talking about the church local or the church universal? One more pair of words, institution and organism. Institution and organism. Does the church exist only when assembled? Does the church dissolve when the ministry gathering taking place in the church building is over? No. The visible church does not vanish when the worship service is over. The church is present wherever its members are. At the same time, when reading the New Testament, one is left with the impression that there is an institutional nature to the church. How so? Well, we're told that elders are to be appointed to lead the affairs of the church. Additionally, someone has to be giving oversight to the ordinances or the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper. Clearly, there's leadership given to the worship that takes place within the gathered church. And church leaders need to be responsible for church discipline matters that arise in the church. So there is an institutional nature to the church. But the New Testament teaches that Christians aren't to be perpetually gathered in this institutional format. We're to disperse, right? Think about it. All over the world, Christians gather on the Lord's day to worship. And when it's over, what happens? They spread out like billions of tentacles, right? That's the church's organism. That's the church's organism. Church is both an institution and it's a collection of individual Christians. It's an organism, Now, to put a finer point on this, there are certain responsibilities placed on the institutional church that are not placed on individual Christians. In the New Testament scriptures, there are certain responsibilities placed on the institutional church that are not placed on individual Christians. And the reverse is true as well. There are certain Um, expectations placed on individual Christians, the church organism, that are not placed on the institutional church. For example, an individual Christian cannot excommunicate another Christian from the church. That's something that's left to the institutional church to do in certain situations. On the flip side... Paul tells a husband that he is to give to his wife her conjugal rights. But the institutional church better not be doing that. 
Roll your eyes if you like. It makes the point. There's a difference between an individual Christian and the institutional church. Or to think about this way, there is a difference between the church as institution and the church as organism. Therefore, we can't just say that whatever we see commanded of individual Christians is also commanded of the institutional church. I would suggest, next time you're reading through the New Testament, to pay attention to whom the commands are given. Individual Christians, the church organism, or the institutional church. It's one of those ways of reading the New Testament we don't naturally do. And we have to be thinking about it ahead of time in order to pick it up. So again, when talking about the church, it is critical to define what you mean. What do you mean? Second, images of the church. Colin Smith one time laid out a list of four distorted images of the church. Listen to these And then we're going to dive into three images of the church we see in God's word. And let's compare and contrast as we do that. Four modern day images of the church. The first, the church as gas station. For some people today, the church is a place where you fill up. You stop by, you fill up. You fill up your spiritual gas tank when you're running low. You get a good sermon, keeps you going for the week. Second, the church as movie theater. For many people, the church is a place that offers entertainment. That's the point. You're here to be entertained. Go for an hour, escape, hopefully in some comfortable seats, though I'm not opposed to that. Leave your problems at the door. Come out smiling, feeling better than you went in. Third, the church is a drugstore. So for some people, the church is a place where you can fill the prescription, that with which will deal with your pain. The church is therapeutic, so I come to church to get my medicine. Fourth, the church as a big box retailer. So others see the church as the place that offers the best products in a clean and safe environment for you and your family. The church offers you a a fantastic service at a great low price. All in one stop. Well, let's see how that compares with the images laid out in the scriptures of the church. The first image is God's people or God's possession. God's possession. The church is God's possession. 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Just a quick parenthetical comment here. Peter says these believers are a chosen race. You know, discussions of race are prevalent today, and there's much to say about that, which Pastor Duane will do in September. But just quickly notice something here. Peter defines the word race in a completely new and different way in 1 Peter. Now he's writing, context, he's writing to uh, believers and churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
So it's a very wide, vast geographic region. He is writing, he's writing to a, an incredibly racially diverse group of people. What I want you to notice is that he lumps all of these racially diverse Christians into one singular category, chosen race. It's actually the word we get genus from. Christians, he's saying, you're a completely different species. Completely different species. So Christians, the church, whatever our skin color may be, constitute a new race, a race that is not predicated on skin color, but that we've been born again into through a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's all the stuff that comes before 1 Peter 2. So we're not a, we're not a, the church global is not a racially diverse group of people who happen to be Christians. We are a new race called Christians who happen to have diverse skin colors. Now, Peter, as he piles up these descriptors of the church, conveys the idea that the church is special. (laughs) You see that? Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. The church is special (laughs) because God made her that way, not because we came that way already. The church is God's possession. The Old Testament backdrop for this is found in both Isaiah 43 and Exodus 19, where Israel is described as God's treasured possession. That term needs to be understood against the backdrop of ancient monarchies. It refers to a term, a a king's personal treasure. In those monarchies, the king was the theoretical owner of everything in the kingdom. Now, within this total ownership, he might gather and lay aside things that he specially prized in a unique way. That was his choice, personal treasure. That's the image of God's possession. This is so good. If you can get this, this is so good. Now think about this. This is not a God who's in desperate need to have some friends or who likes us because he needs us. This God has everything. He's not a theoretical owner of everything. He's the actual owner of everything. He has the Grand Canyon. He's got Mount Everest. He's got the Caribbean Sea, volcanoes, oceans, beaches, and complete perfection, sufficiency, and happiness in himself. He's got it all. He needs nothing. But of all God has, he looks at his church And he says, you, out of everything I have, you, you and you alone are my treasured possession. It's the first image. 
Second image, the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter one, he put all things under his feet and gave him, this is talking about Jesus, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. First Corinthians 12, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This imagery helps us to understand our union with Christ. Jesus is the head. The church is the body. Okay. Notice the church is the body of Christ. The church is not the body of the church. It's the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. Church is the body, which means the church is meant to be the presence of Christ in the world. We are not a group of people unto ourselves. Collectively, the church images Christ to the world. This is why the holiness and purity of the church is of such profound importance and why church discipline has been a faithful practice within the church since the New Testament. It would seem odd, if you think about it, that a church permeated with unaddressed sin would be able to image Christ to the world. It does seem odd. If a church is filled with corruption, it's simply not going to image Christ to the world. Because Christ isn't corrupt. Let's read one example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Keep in mind, writing to a local church in Corinth. There's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. A man is sleeping with his stepmom. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. When sin is confronted, it needs to be confessed. And if not, the person is to be removed from the church. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So you see the purpose, the the driving motivation here is not expression of anger or vengeance, The purpose is to see repentance. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So Paul is saying the purity of the church is of the utmost importance because the church is the body of Christ. 
We're meant to be the presence of Christ in the world, to image Christ to the world, and we can't do that if there's unaddressed sin among our ranks. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd have to go out of this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Someone who professes to be a Jesus follower Don't associate if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindlered. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. At the end of history... Revelation 22 tells us God will conduct an ultimate purge where the unholy will not enter the new heavens and the new earth. But the church right now, today, is meant to be a harbinger of that day. It's meant to be like that day. Why? We're the body of Christ. We're meant to be the presence of Christ in the world. We're meant to image Christ to the world and our holiness and purity matter because that's what Jesus was and is and will forever be like. Third image, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you know, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. You've heard me say this many times. The church is meant to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. The church is the dwelling place of God. Temple of the Holy Spirit. Now when we work our way through the book of Revelation this coming year, we'll be given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Now here's a spoiler alert on the book of Revelation. It's Jesus-obsessed. Book of Revelation is Jesus-centric. There is a lot of talking about Jesus, a lot of looking at Jesus, a lot of exalting Jesus. That ought to characterize us now. That ought to characterize us now. Ray Orland Jr. talks about how there should be a shift in our topics of conversations from what we have during the week with the world when we gather as a church with fellow believers. There should be a shift in how we talk and what we talk about and how we say things. If if the church truly is a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth, our topic of conversation shifts from what's wrong with us, which is plenty, to what's right with Christ, which is endless. And remember, from last week, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is the floodlight ministry. The Holy Spirit shines a light onto Christ. 
And the primary ministries of the Spirit is to exalt Christ, to highlight Christ, to spotlight Christ. If we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom are we to be glorifying? Additionally, if the church is truly a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth, if we're truly the dwelling place of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, we ought to be experiencing something different relationally than what we get anywhere else. Francis Schaeffer knew that. This is what he said. He said, if we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then the eyes of the world and the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. Now, these images in the scriptures to describe the church don't just offer intel for your next dinner party. They create meaning and they give direction. The fact that the church is God's treasured possession means something. The fact that the church is the body of Christ means something. The fact the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit means something. Those images stand in sharp contrast to the images of gas station, movie theater, drugstore, and big box retailer. Wouldn't you say? Last, the mission of the church. Mission of the church. Mission number one, make disciples. Make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. Jesus, Matthew 28 Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is remarkable that these are the very last words out of Jesus' mouth to his disciples before his ascension in Matthew's gospel. And in these last words, he gives them their marching orders. He gives them their mission, which is basically church planting. How? By making disciples. Making disciples. Making disciples. And then Jesus defines what making disciples entails. Baptism and faithfully teaching those baptized believers to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Here's the core mission of the church. Okay? The core mission of the church is to make disciples as Jesus has defined it here. That's the first. Second, attend to core commitments. Take a look at this very fascinating passage from Acts chapter 2. And they, this is the church in Jerusalem, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Now, immediately before this passage, Peter had had preached a sermon to a large crowd gathered in Jerusalem. That sermon came on the heels of Jesus' ascension into heaven when there were just 120 Jesus followers. So Peter gets up to preach to this gathered crowd in Jerusalem, and at the end of it, the text says that they were cut to the heart, and they say, what should we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. And the Lord, we're told, the Lord added to their number. After that sermon, he added to their number 3,000 in a single day. The church grew from 120 to 3,120 in a matter of moments. And then we read this summary passage. So this 3,120 people, this is, this is who the they is about. And they devoted themselves. So with determined persistence, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One of the signs, interestingly, one of the signs you are truly a temple of the Holy Spirit is your appetite to learn the apostles' teaching. Being filled with the Spirit and an appetite for the Scriptures go hand in hand. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship. The original word is koinonia. It's a technical term, meaning sharing in common. Sharing life together is a good way to to look at it. So the church, with determined persistence, devoted themselves to interactive and connective relationships. But it also likely meant sharing possessions. Verse 45 tells us that they regularly sold their possessions and their belongings, and they gave the proceeds to those who had need. So radical generosity was a core commitment of this church. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Scholars are split on whether that's a reference to the Lord's Supper or table fellowship. You can't go wrong either way because we know the early church was very committed to the Lord's Supper and to table fellowship. You can do your own exegetical work and figure that out for me. Which one is it in this passage? They devoted themselves to prayer. So the first church saw as its mission to maintain a rugged fidelity to the core commitments of the church, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, Lord's Supper, generosity, breaking bread together, prayer. Now, question. These things that they devoted themselves to What is in the context, was it in the context of institutional church or church's organism? If it's the Lord's Supper, it's in context of institutional church. Everything else, church's institution or church's organism? Probably both. I'd be willing to bet that these Christians were not institutionally dependent believers. That is, they likely, proactively, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and studying the scriptures together spending time together, giving to one another, eating meals together, praying together, without having to see a ministry for those things posted on their church's website. Make disciples, attend to core commitments. Third, make known the manifold wisdom of God to the spirit world. Ephesians 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
God has assigned a lofty and cosmic role to the church. Now, this verse is not saying the church makes the wisdom of God known to human rulers and authorities. It's saying the church makes God's wisdom known to authorities in the heavenly places. This is another verse, and it is very interesting. It comes in Ephesians, where we later have Paul saying, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the principalities, the rulers in the heavenly places. It's a reminder to us that there's more to reality than we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears. There's more to it than what we see and what we hear. Behind, above, beyond, all flesh and blood evil are spiritual forces. We as the church make known the manifold wisdom of God to spiritual forces. I think we would be shocked if we could see what transpires in the spirit world in this room on Sunday mornings. I think we would be shocked if we could see the spirit world when you're communicating the gospel with another human being. In the context of Ephesians, wisdom is bound up with the gospel itself how God has disclosed the plan of redemption which had been previously hidden. So when we, together, the church organism, preach the gospel, teach the gospel, communicate the gospel, we don't do it for the sake of human flesh alone. There is a cosmic spiritual mission given to the church. I don't want us to lose sight of that because in our Western world, all of reality has been disseminated down to what your five senses can pick up. There is a heavenly war we engage in. And the gospel is preached for the purpose of revealing the glory of God in the heavenlies. Fourth, The church's mission is to hold up the gospel. Paul, writing to the junior pastor in Ephesus, Timothy says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Architectural imagery now, pillar buttress. Church has been given the unique privilege of holding up, holding it up. That's what a pillar and a buttress does. It keeps keeps it up, it keeps it structured, hold up, the gospel. It's up, it's up. It doesn't crumble, it's up. In the context of 1 Timothy, holding up the truth of the gospel probably takes the form of repelling false teaching since that is the primary challenge Timothy seemed to be facing. So when the gospel is offensive, we hold it up. When the gospel is unpopular, we hold it up. When the gospel grates against mainstream ideas, we hold it up. When the gospel falls out of favor with the majority, we hold it up. 
That's what the church does. It's part of our mission. Last, part of our mission is to proclaim the excellency of Christ. The rest of that 1 Peter 2 passage says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your chosen race, your royal priesthood, your holy nation, your people for God's own possession, so that, so that, for this purpose, you may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. You is plural, directed to the entire church. You have a mission to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the fantasticness of Jesus Christ, the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the judgment of Christ, the mercy of Christ. You have that mission. When we gather on Sundays, we are executing part of our mission. This is not just a nice to have. When we gather, we do these things because it's part of our God-ordained mission. This is the way it's supposed to be. When we gather in our small groups, we gather to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. When you witness to a lost friend, you are there to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. This is part of our mission. Look again at this list. Mission of the church is to make disciples, to attend to core commitments, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, generosity, prayer, etc. To make known the manifold wisdom of God to the spirit world, to hold up the gospel, and to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Here's what I want you to notice about our mission. If we are doing these things, we will be seen by the watching world as eccentric. If we are doing these things, okay, your lost friends, neighbors, colleagues, whatever, just the world in general, they will look at us and think we are eccentric. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. I'm tired of this relevance garbage. I was going back through some of my files, pastoral ministry 10 years ago, realizing there are pastors, churches, books that were hot 10 years ago. And today... Those authors are no longer doing what they were doing. Those churches no longer exist, at least in the form they were in. And thought, hmm, they were the cutting edge. They were trendy. They were relevant. The world is not looking for relevant. The world is looking for permanence. It doesn't get any more permanent than the church and the mission Jesus gave it. 2,000 years of proven history. Go ahead, talk to me about relevance. 
I remember hearing this through a testimony of a man who had become a pastor. But his life right up into early adulthood was not headed in that direction. He was a typical uh, party, party animal guy. But after the last girl and after the last alcoholic beverage, he woke up in a state of intense disillusionment. Empty, unfulfilled. So here's what he did. Talk about someone who's on the cutting edge of being trendy and relevant, life of the party. He woke up that morning and he went to a liturgical church that preached the gospel and he responded in repentance and faith. Later on in his life, he was reflecting on that time in his life and he said this, I didn't want to walk into church and find it to be similar to the world I had lived in for 25 years and left me disillusioned. I wanted to walk into a church and experience something completely other, weird, strange, and unfashionable. You hear it? He was actually longing for something eccentric. I tell you what, friends, if we make discipleship, prayer, the scriptures, proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus our core mission, we will be to the world what God wants his church to be. And that is an embassy of an otherworldly coming kingdom. An embassy of another world coming kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are your treasured possession, not because we're so treasurable, but because you're that kind of God. We are the body of Christ, meant to be the presence of Jesus in the world. We are the temple of your spirit, meant to serve as a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. God, I pray that you would help us appreciate our cosmic identity, our cosmic mission. Lord, help us embrace our eccentric role. We are ambassadors of an otherworldly kingdom. And as such, have something to offer nothing in this world can. Father, empower your church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth of the gospel that we may boldly and unashamedly proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, in whose name we pray.